adaptive doesn't mean it's a dumb down trail. Like adaptive just means it's a badass athlete that's going to be ripping down the trail on a slightly different piece of equipment than everybody else. And so how do we accommodate that? You know, how do we, how do we open the door so that everybody can rip it how they want to rip it? And it's not about dumbing down the trail. It's just a different way to think about how you build a trail. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 140, we are re-airing the Joe Stone interview from about 11 months ago. The conversation I had with Joe is easily one of the top five conversations I've had the opportunity to share in this podcast. Joe is now the executive director of Teton Adaptive, located in Jackson, Wyoming. If there is one thing you take away from this conversation, it is that we all should be looking at universal trail design. Aside from that, get ready to get inspired, because Joe's stories are incredible. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites, as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. A huge thank you goes out to the multiple people who have placed orders for Cattle Mountain Apparel and Trail One components. This support definitely does not go unnoticed. I hope you are all enjoying the products that have been ordered. When you use the links found under the affiliate section at the Trail Effect website, a portion of the proceeds will help fund the Trail Effect podcast. Bonus, use the code TRAILPOD when checking out for a 20% discount on all Kettle Mountain Apparel and Trail One components. Now on to the Trail Effect with Joe Stone. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Joe Stone. Joe Stone is the director of mission for Teton Adaptive, which is located in Jackson, Wyoming. Today, Joe is going to talk about what he is into with the T- with Teton Adaptive and everything he's got going on. So how's it going today, Joe? It's going really well. How about yourself? It's going good. So let's kind of go into your backstory and what brought us together because you got some unique things going on with Teton Adaptive and specifically with adaptive mountain biking, but let's get your backstory as to what, you know, how you got to where, to this role and this mission and everything with you. Yeah. So, um, my backstory, um, starts without a disability. So before I sustained spinal cord injury, I was living a pretty great life in, in Minnesota and got into, you know, pretty much whatever I wanted to. So road biking, mountain biking, skydiving. So the air sports started really taking over my life in a large way. And, uh, but, but really spending a lot of time in the outdoors and really trying to get as far away from the pavement as possible, which led to, you know, my buddies and I taking trips every now and again from Minnesota to either go to, you know, the Northern areas of Minnesota, which are beautiful, like the boundary waters and Lake Superior area and stuff like that, which then led to doing bigger trips in the mountains, went up to Alaska, spent some time in some other areas of the West. 
And I, I remember flying back from Alaska and kind of had this aha moment because one, I was sad that I was leaving the mountains up there. I had a couple of really awesome weeks up there with a the buddy and was just like, man, I think I got this backwards. You know, I'm, I'm spending all this time trying to go places and trying to be in the mountains, um, but I'm not living in the mountains. So I think the, I think the move is to switch that and live in the mountains and then visit Minnesota where my you know, family's from and family lives. Go and visit Minnesota as much as possible. So, um, so I switched it around. I ended up it, when I was 20, what was I, 23, moved out to Missoula, Montana and started living life out there and, and really was completely inspired by the mountains around me, by the access I had to the outdoors and really was just charging hard. And within that, my goal was to get into base jumping. So skydiving was that avenue that I was taking that allowed me to gain the skills necessary to be able to make something like base jumping, which is extremely dangerous, make it as safe as possible. And, uh, but skydiving wasn't as readily available in Minnesota as it is, or I mean, in Montana as it is in Minnesota. So I ended up picking up a sport called speed flying and speed flying essentially is the same thing as paragliding only with a much smaller wing. So you're not free falling or anything like that. You're running off of the mountain and the wing comes up over your head as you run and the wind catches into that. And then you eventually run into the air and, and take flight. So that uh, became a pretty quick obsession of mine. I, I really did think in the beginning it was going to be a tool that I was going to use. And that was as far as I was really going to take that. And I got into it and was like, this is, you know, pretty amazing that I can throw all of this gear in a backpack, hike to the top of a mountain and unfold it all outside the backpack and, and go flying. And so I was like, this is, you know, this little magic backpack is pretty amazing. So I, um, yeah, I got pretty obsessed with flying as much as I could five, six times a week, you know, three, four, five times a day. And, you know, with that got pretty filled up with some ego, pretty filled up with the idea of being 24, 25 years old and nothing's going to kill me. And was taking some pretty unnecessary risks, both in, how I was flying, but how quickly I was trying to progress and how much I was trying to teach myself how to do something that easily had some mentors around me that could have, you know, helped guide me in a safer manner to go about that. So in the middle of that ego filled trip that I was on, um, I, you know, was doing a maneuver called a barrel roll. So if this is me hanging below, this is my canopy, you almost do a flip over top of it. And, you know, it was pretty successful with them for about a week and made some mistakes on that final day, August 13th of 2010, pulled on some strings too hard, mismanaged the energy that I had in the wing. And that created a little bit of a collapse in the wing, which then created line twists and sent me spiraling down and I crashed into the side of the mountain. Nobody really knows, but maybe 40 miles an hour or something like that. And, and that sent me on a whole new direction in life. So that turned into a, uh, a month long induced coma. My heart stopped twice. I had a lot of really bad injuries. So total, I, I broke four ribs. I had a laceration in my liver. I had really messed up my lungs. That was the most life-threatening part of that whole scenario. And then on top of all of that, I had uh, eight broken vertebrae throughout my neck and back and then spinal cord damage at the C7 level. So diagnosed as an incomplete C7 quadriplegic. So after my heart stopped a couple of times, I finally got good enough in my health to where they could pull me out of the induced coma after about a month. And then the journey really started one for trying to mentally understand what I was going through, but
but then to physically understand what I was going through. I was in a whole new body. So learning how to move my body around, learning how to use a wheelchair, learning how to get dressed, learning how to breathe again because I was on a ventilator, eat, swallow, everything. You know, basically started out as an infant and had to quickly, as quickly as possible, relearn how I'm going to get after life. And, you know, I'll, I'll end it with, in the beginning, I, I thought that life was going to be 100% dependent on everyone around me. And I'd be living in a nursing home the rest of my life. And that, um, thankfully, was proven wrong. But that's the mindset that I was in in the very early days. You know, question why. Not why did this happen to me, but why, why should I even be doing the work to figure out how to put my pants on? Or why should I even be trying to strengthen my arms? There's nothing out there for me anymore. That was the big question. Um, and there's a lot more to that story, but I'm sure you might have a question or two in there. So I'll take a breather and see, see what your thoughts are from that point. Well, I got, I got two directions we're going to take this. But first, we're going to take this in the direction of while I was preparing for this, I listened to a couple other podcasts that you have been on recently. And one of the things that stuck out to me was a movie that you had watched that from what I could tell kind of changed your mindset and your trajectory forward. And that movie was called Murderball. Do you want to go into that story and how that changed how you looked at all of this? Yeah, Murderball game changer for sure. So up until Murderball came into my life, it, it could not have been better timing. And so Murderball is a documentary that follows the U.S. Paralympic team for quad rugby. And Murderball was the original name for quad rugby. And uh, as they say in the film, it became significantly more challenging to get sponsors to sponsor Murderball um, versus something that's maybe a little bit more eloquently put like quad rugby. And so... Um, they, uh, it not only follows the sport end of it and then going to the Olympics and, um, and, and, and playing that game, but it follows their lives and a little bit of their backstories and what it took for them to, you know, get to the point to where they could be traveling. I think it was, they went to Beijing for the Paralympics that year is what it was in maybe 2008 or something. So that gives a, a kind of dates back the film. Like it's a little bit older now. Um, but this is, I'm, this is in 2010 for me when I came across it. So the interesting thing about Murderball was, Earlier that day, there was classroom time in rehab. And, uh, and so what that meant was for an hour every day, we just went over a topic of spinal cord injury, something we'd have to think about, worry about, you know, plan for whatever it might be, just so everybody had a better understanding of what life was going to look like with the spinal cord injury so we could live as healthy as possible, and be best prepared. And that day was on driving. And there was a, a short film that we watched about a quadriplegic and he rolled his power chair up into a van. At this point, I'm sitting on a power chair. So I wasn't, wasn't strong enough to be using a manual wheelchair. And it just showed his, his hand being placed onto the hand controls that allowed him to hit the gas and brake. Um, and his hand was similar to mine. I had no grip in it. Like mine, mine doesn't have, this, my left hand has no grip. And, and it's really atrophied. And, and um, yeah, so it showed his hand pushing down on the hand control and that moment, like, I don't know why or what it was about that moment, but it was like looking in a mirror. So I looked down at my hand and it was the same. And, you know, it, it hit me like a brick wall that like, this is for life, you know? And it was a moment of like really trying to wrap my head around what, if this is for life, like, what does that mean? And what does that mean for my mindset? And so I was really trying to 
accept without knowing that I was trying to accept it. I was, I was, my mind was starting to make that transition to, you know, what's going on here and how do we accept this? So a little later that day, I, um, through some tears, obviously that happened that afternoon and, you know, this is the rest of my life. And, you know, what have I gotten myself into? And I did this to myself. So a heavy level of guilt that came from that. I was presented with the film Murderball and it had no attachment to anything I was going through. Nobody knew I was going through this. And uh, it was like, hey, you should check out this film. And so, you know, I was like, okay, well, let's watch it. So I sat down with my laptop and threw the DVD in and started watching it. And, and it, it really, it was really hard to watch because just like that moment for the guy pushing down on the hand controls, um, I was like looking in the mirror. I was watching other, other guys about my age who had either gone through it or were going through it. And, you know, their bodies looked really similar to mine. Their, um, their whole experience was really similar to mine. And so there was a lot of tears as I made my way through that film. But that film opened my eyes and it really told me that, you know, a high quality of life is achievable. And so I kind of sat on that after watching the film and um, did some more crying that night and woke up the next day and, and, and really felt that there was a large weight lifted off my shoulders. And, and I was like, okay, well, if this is the rest of my life, you know, what can I do with this? And so I went into rehab and I started working a lot harder and I got done with rehab and I'd get to my, my hospital room and I'd start walking, working a lot harder. And then it was like kind of my old self kind of that I was tapping into, which was, you know, the day's not over just because I punched out the clock. Like there's still plenty of hours left in this day. So what can I do with that? And so I started doing a lot more, like trying to get dressed and trying to prepare food for myself and starting to do research online on what, what I'd be, um, what I could look forward to instead of the, the negative ends of things, but like what's out there, you know, what kind of equipment exists, what kind of bikes are out there or trikes and is anybody paragliding with a, with a disability? Is that even a thing? You know, started doing that. But on top of it, I started, I continued watching Murderball and I watched it every night for pretty much the rest of the time I was in the hospital. So there's probably 20 or 30 days where I watched Murderball in the hospital every single night. And it transitioned from kind of being sad by looking, kind of looking at myself in the mirror is what that film felt like to, wait a minute, how'd they just push their wheelchair? How'd they get over that curve? How'd they put their pants on? How are they eating? You know, and it started being a tool for lessons. And, and I was, I was, cause I could visualize it now and I could see it. Then I was, I could then visualize it for myself and work on it and, and whether that be in rehab or in my own free time. And so it really did transition from um, this place of, of dark sadness and thinking I'd be in a nursing home the rest of my life to after seeing that film in the perfect timing that it came into my life, it, it really did start to transition my mindset to there's a lot I can do with this life. Um, it's not going to happen if I don't do the work though. So I had good support, I had great family around me, good friends, and I had all the necessary tools to be able to work towards things. And so I just decided to take advantage of what the rehab was offering me and see how far I could take it. And, and that, that really did, that was the mind shift that I needed to not only accept my injury that early on, but also uh, progress in the direction that I personally wanted to progress in. So that, I mean, that film was, it was such a game changer that it inspired me and a couple of others to actually make a documentary about my story. First three years post-injury called that film's called it's raining. So what? And that, that film's, I mean, it's so old now compared to, it seems like a whole different life ago, but the idea behind that film was if it can do what it, if our film, It's Raining So What, could do 
for someone else, what murder ball did for me, we were, we nailed it, you know, knocked it out of the park. So we, yeah, we, we spent three years filming and followed the journey all the way up to where I was um, training to do an Ironman triathlon. And that film is what sparked the whole thing, sparked the whole journey, the whole rest of my life, really. So it's cool when people take the time to document things and, and share and be vulnerable on camera so that other people can see it. Cause you just never know how much that's going to touch somebody and how much that's going to help shape somebody's future, which that film did a lot for me. And I know I'm not the only one. Yeah. And with that, you started setting some goals on things you wanted to accomplish and timelines that you wanted to accomplish those goals in. And you not only achieved those goals, but you exceeded, you shortened those timelines from what, from the initial goals you set. Correct. Yeah. The first goal was to become independent within one year. So that's just basic cares. That wasn't driving, going to work, you know, figuring out ways to get on trails by myself or anything like that. It was get up, get dressed and get ready for the day. So can I take a shower? Can I go to the bathroom? Can I put clothes on, you know, make a bowl of cereal and, and get the day started and then and reverse that process at night. You know, so I remember while I was still in the hospital and I was, you know, to all my PTs and OTs and nurses and doctors, like, I'm trying to do this in one year, one year anniversary. I want to have these, these things checked off that I'm now able to do on my own. And they, they were supportive of the idea, but also came with the, you know, just so you know, it's somebody at your level of injury. It takes two to four years on average for someone to reach that level of independence. So it's not that we don't want you to set goals, but we do want you to, to set your expectations appropriately. And so if you don't hit that goal, don't let that drag you down. And I think they were, you know, I think it was probably a good and bad thing that they said that, uh, you know, I think it's good to, to help get people lined up appropriately with their goals, but also it was kind of like, well, did that need to be said, you know, like, was, was that, was that necessary? Um, because thankfully for me, that was more fuel for the fire. Like, oh, you're telling me I can't cool. Um, game on, you know, but for somebody else that might've been a moment of like, okay, you're right. Now we've got this timeline. It's really interesting when you set a timeline. Um, I work really well with deadlines and that doesn't mean that um, I plan really well with deadlines, but that means that the deadline gets closer and closer and closer. I'm going to get the work done. So I hit that deadline. Right. And so knowing that it was, I had this date, August 12th, that I wanted to be able to say, I met this goal. It was game on for me. And then when they said like, most people can't do it, it was like, well, okay, well, I'm still only 25 years old and filled with ego. So um, I'm not most people, even though I am. Um, and so I, you know, I just started working really hard and, and I ended up hitting that goal in seven months and it was pretty wild, a pretty wild moment to be sitting in occupational therapy. I remember that I'll never forget the therapist I was with. And we kind of sat back and we were like, he knew what I was trying to do. And there was some, um, some deadlines for some other reasons that were going on of why we were trying to hit certain goals. And I, we just sat back one day and we were like, man, we checked it all off. Like I got transfers down independently. I can, uh, I can, I can get up and down from the floor onto my wheelchair. Not perfect and not, not to the best of my ability, but good enough. You know, uh, I, I can get dressed. I can get up. I can shower. I can, I can do all these things without fear of falling and hitting the ground and making, needing somebody around me. And, and so I remember sitting there with them and we were like, what's the future now? Like, I don't really need occupational therapy anymore. 
you know, and with physical therapy, it was like, well, now I'm starting to go to the YMCA and work out and do all the workouts they're teaching me. So do I need to be coming here and have somebody help me or can I just go to the YMCA on my own? And, you know, the answer to all that was I can do this on my own. And so then that was a, a really unique moment. And I'll never forget sitting back and going, okay, so we're at seven months. Nailed it. This is amazing. Let's celebrate it for a moment. Hit the pause button and go, I can't believe what we've accomplished in seven months. But then it was like, well, I've got five months before I hit that one year anniversary. So wonder if I can achieve a smile. Because at that point, like I was just getting through the day. I just wanted to be able to take care of myself. Now I was like, can I actually make a smile happen? So I, you know, talking to this, like a neurologist, like I couldn't have anything that had a high risk of impact because I still had a fresh fusion in my neck and stuff like that. And so road biking was something I did before my injury. I had a lot, I had a, you know, a decent amount of long distance endurance style road biking rides under my belt. And I was like, well, I can get on a road bike and, and I can do that. So maybe I'll set up a long road bike ride. And then it was like, well, I miss Montana because I'm back in Minnesota now. So maybe I can travel back to Montana and, and camp. And, and, and then it was like, well, what did I always want to do in Montana? Well, I always kind of wanted to bike to go into the Sun Road, Open Glacier National Park. So, okay, this was a goal I had. It was just like, I knew I could always do it. Now it's into the total unknown. And it's something I wanted to do before my injury. So why not go after it now? And let's see if I can make a smile happen. Let's see what I can do. So by the time I got a hand cycle and I got all the equipment that I needed, and I had three months to train and cranked as hard as I could for five days a week for three months and trained like my old self. And, you know, um, ended up getting to the top of Logan Pass, which was the big question mark. It's 12 miles of climbing, 2,500 feet of vertical that you got to go up and made it happen. Eight and a half hours of climbing, did it. And my mind was just completely opened up. And it was like, okay, so if in one year I could go for, from accident, month-long induced coma, three more months of inpatient rehab, three more months after that of outpatient rehab, now I hit my independence, then find the bike, get on the bike, find the solutions I needed for my left hand that has no grip, get all that dialed in, go for solo bike rides, figure out how to change bike tires, do all of that, then end up back in Montana camping with my buddies and, and cranking the going to the Sun Road and, and actually do it. and then. Uh, you know, it took eight and a half hours to climb the pass to 14 hours total to do the entire 50 mile stretch of road, make that happen. But if I can do that in, in one year, like, okay, life's on. Like we just, we just turned it back on life is I've got a full life ahead of me. And that really did open the, open the door for me to, to really start trying a whole lot of new things and, and get back to the quality of life that I really wanted to live. And, and, and for the next couple of years after that, two or three years, it was pretty focused on myself and how do I, you know, make my life happen again. And then that, that transition, you know, after getting back into paragliding and getting back into mountain biking and getting back into camping and getting back into traveling and, 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 and starting to check all these boxes off of like what life was a, a bit like it was before my injury, only now doing it as a wheelchair user. You know, once I was able to check all those boxes and it was like, well, okay, now I've learned all of this. What do I do with that? And I looked around and I saw a lot of other people that wanted to be doing the same thing. They had questions for me. And I said, well, now maybe it's time to share it. And that, that was a pivotal, pivotal moment in my life that really started, you know, me sharing how I did things more and wanting to work with other people and teach and, and show other people that they could, they could chase those smiles the same way I was.
And so it's not that I wasn't chasing smiles for myself still, but my cup was pretty full at that point. So now I had, I had the room to be able to, to share time with other people and, and yeah, try to, you know, play somewhat of a role in the outdoor industry to try to make life for people with disabilities a little bit more uh, inclusive in the outdoor industry. I had the Joe Stone Foundation further down in our list of topics, but maybe it makes more sense to slot that in here, considering that kind of builds up to what we're going to talk about next with T10 Adaptive. So let's go into the Joe Stone Foundation and the things that you accomplished with that foundation. Yeah. So the Joe Stone Foundation was started in 2013. And we spent about a year trying to figure out what that meant. So 2012, 2013, we were really trying to get a good understanding of what what we were trying to accomplish. We worked with an awesome organization called A Better Society. A Better Society is a nonprofit incubator, and they were really helping us um, figure out what it is we wanted to do. And it's one thing to say you want to help a certain group of people, um, but how do you do that? And what, what, are you, what are you going to do within that minority group? to be able to help. And so they were asking a lot of really tough questions that started in a really general manner. So it was, you know, what do you want to do? Well, I want to help people with disabilities. Okay. Well, how do you want to help people with disabilities? Well, I want to make it easier for people with disabilities to get into the outdoors. Okay. Well, what are the problems you see within the industry that is making it a challenge for people with disabilities to get in the outdoors? And then it started getting into these questions where I had to really sit and think, and I didn't always have the answers. It might be leaving with those questions and thinking about them overnight. And I remember one day I was, I was sitting there and I was like, well, here's the thing. I, I was uh, an outdoor enthusiast before my injury and I, anything I wanted to do before my injury, I was able to go do as long as I set my mind to it and saved up some money or whatever it was. But I was able to accomplish it and I was able to get involved in whatever it is I really wanted to do. And then I got injured and I sustained a spinal cord injury. And all of a sudden I found myself on this side of the community and the rest of the community over here. So my opportunities were on this side and everything else was on the other. And I was like, it just seemed strange to me to, to have something is, um, you know, one moment change the entire, my entire life, not only physically and mentally, but also um, the way society sees me and the way my community sees me. And that was what was really strange to me. And so I want to find a way where we can help bridge the gap between people with and without disabilities. Like I want to make that something to where someone with a disability can go and play alongside with all of their, uh, all their peers that don't have disabilities and not have it be such a, a separation. And I remember the lady sitting back and she was just like, oh, okay, this is way bigger than what you think. This is trying to change the way society thinks. This is trying to challenge the stigma against disability. And she was like, this is what we want to help with. She's like, this is a real thing that's going to take a long time. But changing the way society thinks is something they were like, we're into that. And so what we narrowed it down to from there, once we figured out this was like a big mission, it was why not go to already existing events, outdoor events, mountain biking, ultra marathons, marathons, paddleboard races, festivals, things like that. And we work with those organizations that are organizing those events and we just make them, uh, help make them more inclusive. So we partner with them and we bring the adaptive equipment, we bring other nonprofits that are supporting people with disabilities in the outdoor world. 
and, and have them bring out some equipment and their knowledge and their staff and their volunteers. And, and then we invite as many people with disabilities as we can get out to those events. And we make it an event that works for everyone. And so we did that with a mountain bike festival called White Hill Rendezvous, which is actually coming up and it's over Labor Day weekend. It's just around the corner for us eight, eight years later. And, um, we did that with some paddleboard races we did it with paddleboard festival. We did it with an ultra marathon, handful of other things. And, and then it was like, well, this is, you know, way easier to go join an already existing event and help just bring the adaptive side of it to the table than it would be to organize the whole event, you know, and, and a whole mountain bike festival is a lot of work, but if all we got to do is just help get people with disabilities there and the proper support and equipment, then, well, that's a lot easier than, the rest of the things that go along with organizing that mountain bike festival. So it was really easy to do that in a lot of different areas in a very short amount of time. And then, you know, when you look around and you go, okay, well now I got people with and without disabilities all playing together. Let's take the mountain bike festival, for example, White Hill Rendezvous. We had people with disabilities riding chairlifts with people without disabilities, you know, getting on, doing downhill laps, doing cross country laps, um, everybody having a ball, putting tires on dirt, sharing meals, cheers and beers playing the shenanigan games they have going on. So we were towing kegs behind our empty kegs behind our hand cycles. And we had our own little races. And, and then we started throwing people without disabilities on the equipment to open up their eyes to what, you know, could be possible with the adaptive equipment. And then these great stories started being shared back and forth between people with and without disabilities and high fives all around. And we were like, this is amazing. And what was really cool out of it was you could have a family or a group of friends come out where there's one person with a disability in the mix. And everybody had an opportunity at this festival. And that was really unique. And that's when we were like, this is, this is the push. This is the movement, right? And so uh, that, that really did shape how we were operating through the Joe Stone Foundation and what our goals were to create inclusion in the outdoor spaces that we all get to enjoy so much. And, and bringing that level of inclusion really just sparked like some of the best energy I've ever been around. And um, it not only said it's needed, but it said people, people are, are, are willing to make that happen. So we just followed the good energy the whole time. And, and with that good energy, we're able to make a lot of really cool events that most of which we passed off to the you know, Dream Adaptive or whatever other group was close to that area for them to manage after a couple of years. And then we get to move on to other things. White Hill Rendezvous, we, we've all, I've kept that one close to my heart the whole time because that was the first one. And yeah, we're on year number eight or nine. and. Uh, and it's still, you know, an amazing event. And so, yeah, inclusion all of a sudden became something that I not only wanted to see more of, but I understood and I saw the need. And, and with the awesome team of people I had around me, we were able to really, you know, get after that and make some positive changes happen around us. Well, speaking of moving on, let's go into T10 Adaptive and what your role as the director of mission is, A, but more broadly, what Teton Adaptive is and all the different areas that Teton Adaptive goes into with adaptive sports and adaptive activities. Yeah. So Teton Adaptive was there for me in 2013, the first year I showed up to Idaho. So Kurt Henry, the founder and, and Ryan Burke, his program director at the time, uh, came out to support me. Let's go try some trails at Grand Targhee and see if they work. And we found out what trails work really well. We also found out what trails don't work really well. And they were, they were there to support me through the whole thing. And, and a handful of others in my life, Kevin May and 
David Trinus, who invited me out to the festival in the first place, who was the, the director of that festival at the time. And we um, really started uh, a cool relationship. And I remember Kurt looking at me and going, well, what do you think? And I was like, I think this is a really cool festival. And I think there's plenty of opportunities. And I think next year we should invite more people. And he goes, all right, well, um, this is your baby. I can see that. So we're here for you. We want to support it. But we want to see you do this in the way that you see like people with disabilities want to be blended into this festival. And so um, he was there for me. And then Kurt retired and, and, and then a new director took over and we continued the partnership. And then it was in 2020, speeded up to had a lot of conversation on the phone, um, worked on some other projects together. Um, the White Hill Rendezvous being the main one. And uh, we ended up, uh, I, I, I was out here in 2020. My girlfriend got a physical therapy job out here. And, and so it was kind of one of those things. COVID just, you know, hit and took over the world. And, and uh, Caitlin got this PT job here. And I remember saying, well, like, I can help you move there. But I just lost all of my speaking gigs. I'm a public speaker as well. And so I had no income. And I was like, moving to Jackson, of all places, isn't, isn't really in the cards for me right now. But I'll help you move there, you know. And uh, I, had a, I was doing a film project for Teton Adaptive for their 15-year anniversary. And that film project just kind of ended with a full-time position at the company. And what was so cool about it and why I accepted the position and was so grateful for it was that the mission is similar and it's about creating more inclusion in the community. So it's about partnering with the already existing entities around town that, and help them become more inclusive to people with disabilities. And so we lean on them and we partner with them on a lot of things, but we help them out with the equipment and the training they need and then the scholarships that folks with disabilities might need if the cost is a barrier so that people with disabilities can show up to their business and, and feel welcomed and get involved. And so since Teton Adaptive had this element of inclusion wrapped around it, that really had a lot of interest to me. And so dissolved the Joe Stone Foundation, donated what was left within the Joe Stone Foundation to Teton Adaptive and, and went all in on, on making the dream happen in the Jackson area. Yeah. And you're so close to Idaho. Totally. Which is funny. That, you know, uh, Driggs, Idaho was a place where I was always like, I could move here. I could live over here. This is cool. I like this area. This community is great. Mountains are amazing. Lots of trails, lots of fun. And yeah, then to have that, you know, 2013 was the first year I showed up and then have it be that many years later, all of a sudden, like naturally, without it being forced, just following the good energy, there it was, you know, and I living in Jackson, pretty close to Grand Targhee and working on growing that mission as much as possible in, in, uh, in the outdoor industry around here. So we're, I think Jackson's a really cool place where it's, it's set standards in a lot of ways for a lot of groups, a lot of different industries in the outdoors. And now I think, you know, we're working towards, you know, providing that same example in the outdoor world for people with disabilities and how the inclusion model really can work. So it's, it's pretty amazing how, you know, life's funny like that, how it can guide you around and, uh, and put you in the right place. And if you just stay, keep your eyes open and your wits about yourself and follow that good energy. I'm a pretty, pretty big believer at this point in my life in, in not forcing things. And by not forcing anything, it just kind of naturally worked out. So here I am now. Yeah. And loving, loving life, loving Jackson, loving Teton Adaptive and loving the mission that we're, we're on to create more inclusion. Yeah. The, the whole non-forcing things, that's something I definitely am actively working on getting better at and awareness around that. Yeah. 
you know, and being like, I guess, you know, kind of strategically patient. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. I think not forcing things is worth it because when you're forcing something, you're not paying attention. And when you're not paying attention, you're not seeing what's really going on around you. And when you sit back and you actually just let things unfold and you stay as present as possible, well, now you start to see what's going on. And I think that that really, you know, when those doors open, if you don't see them, you're never going to go through them. But when you're, when, you're, when you're flowing with things a little more and being a little more present, you see those doors open and you see if it's a door, you get to peek in, see if it's something you want to go. And yeah, I, I mean, that's, I'm a, I was forcing things in my life before my injury and that's why I got hurt. And uh, it t- still took some years after that to, to figure out what that means to not force things, but not forcing it. Um, after I started to understand what that really means, really started to pro- progress my own personal progression, uh, the work I was doing in the outdoor world to create more inclusion, you know, relationships, everything, everything just started to kind of flow a little bit better, a little bit more smoothly. And so once you tap into that and you see that, that there has some positive impacts by allowing that to happen, it's kind of hard to not notice it and, and continue, you know, trying to bring that kind of energy. Yeah. And I'm going to grab something to drink really quick. I'm happy you're editing things because I was not prepared. Oh yeah, for sure. Got a funny story about editing with somebody that we both know. That's Jeremy P. McGee. This is totally sidetracking. I'll bring us back. But when we recorded, we recorded in his van. And he wanted to record not only for the Trail Effect podcast, he wanted to take what I had recorded and put it out on his own podcast and also put it out on his Unpavement YouTube channel. And so while while we were recording, he had a GoPro camera going the whole time because I only do audio. I don't do video. And he wanted the video part for YouTube. Well, you've probably used a GoPro maybe. I'm not a YouTube or GoPro user, but he had YouTube cameras. I think his third, we went through four cameras and four or four batteries. I'm sorry. During that. And at the same time, he's like, I don't want you editing any of this. Like, okay. It's like, just, we'll just leave it as it is. And then when the fourth battery died, we were still in conversation. And so then it just went, he, he came up with a, like a screen to come, you know, to put out on his YouTube video when that, when that video came out, but it was just funny and how he was Yep, we're going to do this uh, like Joe Rogan style where nothing gets edited and it's just super long form and see how it goes. Yeah, I actually appreciate that. I, I, I do better in the long form kind of platforms. I do a lot of editing myself and I understand it and, and all that. But, you know, sometimes there's like really good things that come out of just not focusing on that. Like, you know, here's a good example. Right now, I'm a C7 quadriplegic. My blood pressure is always lower than everybody else's because I have a disability and and the level of disability that I have and type of disability. So I woke up this morning and it was a really busy start to the day. It was call after call after call and get on the call with you. And all of a sudden I realized that I haven't eaten anything yet today. Well, it doesn't take that much for my blood pressure to drop for me to start feeling a little lightheaded, which is what's kind of going on right now. So it was like, I need to take a break. And and sometimes, and I think that's something that's really unique. And I think it's something that is um, really important for people with disabilities to feel comfortable with of like, you know what? I need to get some water um, and I need to throw some sugar in my body right now because otherwise I'm not going to feel good in a couple minutes. And I felt that coming on. And so it was like, you know, um, being comfortable with whatever's going on within yourself. I think a lot of times people try to hide the uncomfortable sides of their life. I think in a disability world, people can feel guilty. Like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta, 
have you pause for a second so I can take care of myself. But, you know, self-care is really, really important. And that could be bigger things like going for bike rides and working out and seeing a therapist or, um, you know, whatever, and filling your own cup up, making sure you're healthy that way. But also in moments like this, where it's like, you know what, this is the real side of my life. You know, just like everybody else, I got too busy today and I forgot about eating food and drinking water. Well, now I don't feel good. So um, I'm going to take a moment because it's only going to get worse for me and I'm going to get the right things in me so that I can, I can keep this awesome conversation with you. And, um, and I think sometimes people hide that stuff and, and it's okay to not uh, feel good for a moment. It's okay to hit the pause button and say, I got to take care of myself real quick and get water or whatever. Um, it's okay to recognize that the disability might affect your life in some way that makes it to where you have to take these moments and they're more important now than they ever were because your body doesn't handle things as well as it used to. That's totally cool. And it's, it's cool to be comfortable in your situation and your own skin and um, trying to find that is hard. But once you find it, go with it. Cause it's, um, it's, it's totally fine to, to live with a disability. I'm proud to have a disability, proud to be a part of the disability community, proud to be doing the work that I'm doing. But within that comes these little weird moments where I'm like, whoa, I'm getting lightheaded. What's going on? Oh, wait, I haven't eaten yet today. Hey, let's stop for a second. I got to get water. And, um, and I think, you know, there's a day in my life before now with my spinal cord injury where I would have tried to fight it. So I didn't have to let people know that maybe my body has some different issues than it used to and it doesn't handle certain things as well like it used to. So um, I would have fought that and that would have not ended well, you know, probably five years, six years ago, I probably would have tried to power through that a little bit more. And now I'm like, that's not worth it. No, let's, let's, let's make sure we're doing a good job to take care of myself so that you and I can have a really good conversation. No. Yeah. I'm really glad, glad you brought that up too. I mean, even, even with able-bodied humans, we get, you know, we get that, that guilt and not wanting, and maybe it's just not wanting to inconvenience somebody else or whatever the story is you're, you're telling yourself. And usually it is a story you're telling yourself and not reality. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because anytime I've ever been like, Hey, can we stop for a second? I got to get some food in me. I'm not feeling well. Or, Hey, I, you know, it just hit me. I'm cutting you off right now. I got to go to the bathroom, but my, my time to make sure I make it to the bathroom is short. And I've never had somebody be like, I can't believe you would stop this conversation right now to eat food. So you feel better. Like I've never, it's never happened. You know, even the grumpiest people that I've ever worked with or spent time with or had conversations with, have never been like, no, you're not allowed to eat food. We are talking right now. They're like, cool. Can I help? Can I get you something? I got some things in my, my fridge over here. Let me grab it. Like, people are awesome. Most people are really cool and nobody wants anybody to sit there and feel uncomfortable. And so people appreciate honesty and people appreciate vulnerability. And yeah, it's turned into what I thought used to be an inconvenience to people or I'm showing a weakness within myself to where now it's like, the strength is actually knowing that you're not, that you're in a situation that doesn't feel right and you speak up and you take care of it. You know, that, there's a lot of strength in being able to recognize where you don't, where you need to do something to take care of yourself. And that might mean, you know, cutting somebody off in conversation. That might mean canceling an appointment because you're not feeling well that day. But there's a lot of strength in that um, more than weakness for sure. Yeah. And you just, when you said no food, that just totally put my mind towards a Seinfeld episode with a soup Nazi with no soup for you. <laughs> yeah. He might've denied me. He might've, uh, he might've, he, you know, the soup Nazi might've done something, but, uh, 
but yeah, luckily you're not that guy. Well, yeah. And it was Seinfeld. <laughs> I'm eating popcorn on your podcast right now to get some sugar in me. So that's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, people can't see that, but that's good to, you know, that, that's a, that's a good thing. And that's, that's it. Just popcorn. Well, I had a couple, um, uh, what are they? Little, um, like gummy candy, you know, I guess need some sugar really quick. So I had some, some gummies that I would like throw in my, uh, in my bag when I go for a bike ride, you know, just to have some sugar when I'm on a cardio workout or something like that. You just need a little, little boost to keep going. And so I was rolling over to get some soda water and saw those sitting on the counter. And I was like, that would give me some sugar really quick. Cause that is pure sugar. And then I just happened to have some like sweeter popcorn sitting next to me in a bag. So I'm just popping a couple of those in my mouth every now and again to get the sugar level caught back up. And, and then once I'm done with this, I'll actually make a proper meal. Um, but it'll give you through the moment at least. Yeah. Well, should we get back in the moment of T10 adaptive? Yeah. Let's jump in. So here we go. What put you on my radar, which your name had crossed my radar a couple of times, uh, especially with, you know, knowing Lacey Heward and, and really paying attention or really attempting to pay attention and put more purpose into what is going on in the adaptive community and how the trail community as a whole can really serve the adaptive community. And with that came a movie or a short film you had made that highlights something that really brought us together, which is universal trail design. Let's talk about universal trail design, that movie and the trail deepest, darkest that was highlighted in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at a really awesome time in life where people are really starting to recognize how important it is to include everybody in trail design. That's been something I've focused on for a long time. So go, let's go back to history for a moment. In 2011, I, 2000, yeah, it must've been 2011. I uh, got on my first off-road hand cycle. It's adapted mountain bike. And Three Rivers Park District, I became buddies with a couple of people that work for Three Rivers in Minnesota, and they help run the adaptive side of things there. And so we kind of worked together a little bit on figuring out what would be the best equipment for them to first get for adaptive mountain bikers. So they, they got a couple of uh, Lasher all-terrain hand cycles, zero suspension, um, and uh, front-wheel driven. I mean, these are OG bikes, when, if and when there's ever a museum for you know, adaptive sports, they'll be in there as of what, you know, what got this movement going. And they had a couple of those. I had my own and they helped build the first adaptive trail in one of the parks, uh, a little South of Apple Valley where I grew up. So I went there and it was a one mile loop. You know, the whole place had maybe like, you know, five or 10 miles of trail, um, pretty small little park, but, um, it had one mile that was wide enough to support the adaptive mountain bikes. Well, at that time, that was amazing. When we went, we went around this, it's a green trail, really easy, out in the field, didn't go in the woods or anything like that. And it was great. There was an adaptive trail, right? But I remember being like, this is cool, but I used to bike a lot more challenging terrain than this. Like, this is like, it's cool that this exists, but it's also like, man, is there more? And we didn't know. The answer was, you know, open-ended. We had no idea. And so at that time, it was about creating adaptive trails and, and accessible trails. And as time went on, more and more of those started popping up. The equipment and technology got a lot better. 
and people with disabilities are able to push themselves a lot further into the woods, uh, more challenging terrain. And then it became, well, we don't want the easy trail. We want a trail that actually has some challenges that we have to face. We want a little bit more adventure to this. And so then the idea of universal design that was presented to me through um, more in like physical structures, buildings, things like that within a city, like, is there a way to build a building, a new building that has zero step entry, no ramps at all getting into it, where everybody enters in through the exact same spot? Now, that's inclusion, right? It's not really inclusion when somebody with a disability has to go around the back of the restaurant and pass the dumpsters and in through the kitchen and make their way, you know, over the loading dock and all of that to get into meeting their family at the table to have dinner. What's, it, what's inclusive is when the whole family can just roll in the front door and go get, get to the table and, and share a meal together like that, that smoothly and easily. So then we started talking trail design and it was, it was kind of one of those areas where it's like, well, why can't universal design just apply to trails? And universal design really is a shift of the mindset on how you view how to include people with disabilities and other folks, you know, uh, moms, dads, or strollers, people who are a little bit older, people who are using, um, you know, canes and walkers and um, little kids that the steps might be challenging or whatever. No, it really does open the door for a lot of people. So then the idea of implementing that into trail design was really like a shift in the mindset, more so than just changing the, you know, from adaptive trail to universally designed trails. And what I mean by that is, is when you, when a lot of places will build like new trails and they'll make that one adaptive trail, which is that one adaptive trail I did through three rivers, right? Well, now the box has been checked. So cool. We made the one adaptive trail. Let's carry on business as usual with all the other trails. And I actually went back to that park last summer and on the newest technology, which is the, the bowhead reach, which is what's in deep, uh, digging for answers. That's what Pierre and I are riding. And, and I was actually able to ride every trail in that entire park because I was on the bowhead. So the technology opened up the door for me to be able to go on all these other trails. Um, the other equipment would have struggled because they were too, it was too narrow and side hilly and stuff like that. But the only trail there that was, that was still made adaptive was the one, one mile loop that was made adaptive in the beginning, like 10 years ago. And so they checked the box and they never did anything further. So one, my goal is to get people to shift their mindset from this idea of we're making an adaptive trail to, you know, we're universally designing trails. So it's not just the one adaptive trail, it's the whole trail system, wherever possible. So now you're thinking, getting trail designers and builders to look at the trail differently. How can we make this work for everyone? Like, how can we, we can take this double black trail. It doesn't mean it can only be three inches wide to make a double black. That's not what makes it double black. And now with the technology that we have in the adaptive mountain bike world, we can tackle double black trails, you know, that gets, that's totally fine. And there's plenty of people with enough skills on, on the adaptive mountain bikes to, to crush it on double black trails. And it's fun. It's a lot of fun to be on super techie trail and, and be bouncing down rocks and roots and all of that. So now it's the shift of like, okay, a new trails being built. So let's build that in a way that works for everyone. Let's not build it in a way that has a focus on how do we make this be the one trail for people with disabilities? How do we make it work for everyone? And then what's cool from that is all the doors that open up on that trail. So yes, the trail needs to be a little bit wider. Yes, some of the turning radiuses need to be a little bit bigger. 
and, and maybe not as many off camber sections and things like that. Most of the things that I'm talking about are things that people on two wheels could care less about. Like it doesn't affect the ride in any way. And then what opens up when you have a, a really nice universally designed trail is you have line choice on the trail. So now you've got a situation where somebody riding it, especially when you start talking really technical trails, somebody can be riding it and be looking down the trail and be like, what is going to be the best line down that trail for me? Instead of only having the, you know, the, the eight or 12 inches of trail width of a single track to go, and you just have to go wherever that trail is going to take you. Now you've got line choice, which opens up a whole nother door for you to be creative in the way you ride, be able to push yourself on a trail in a way you've never pushed yourself. And it was really interesting. I did a, I did the Dunbar series a couple of weeks ago up in, up in um, BC and they have an adaptive division now for three of the races. So one's in Fernie, one's in Invermere and one's at Golden. And the trails there, especially uh, Panorama Resort, that was the most technical of all of them. The same went for Fernie, where it was like a very technical, rocky, rooty trail, steep, fast. Uh, you had to come with some skills, definitely not your beginner trail. But it was wide enough where you could pick lines on it. And then it was like, well, the person who's going to go the fastest is not only one the person that's going to you know, take the most risks in their speed and, and, and push their skills, but also who's going to pick the best line down this. And I was looking at it and I was like, they built this trail a long time ago. And without even having a clue that this was something that was in the end going to be universally designed, it turned into that. And so that was like proof that you can have a really technical challenging course that isn't just single track and only meant for two wheels. So universal design is, I mean, by definition, it's something that works for everyone. But the, the real thing is the mind shift and how all new trail design gets built versus, versus just checking the box for that one adaptive trail. And I think when you call it an adaptive trail, you open the door for someone to just check a box and then say, we're, we're good. We did our part. Now we can get on business as usual on the rest of the trails. Well, and there's a couple directions we're going to take this. But first and foremost, I'd like to point out for all the listeners, some things or highlight some things that you had said and that have, has been explained to me in other formats, which is adaptive, or as you're saying now, which I like this term a lot better, universal trail design does not mean it needs to be simple or like we say in the trail community, dumbed down and that double black diamond trails can be universal trail design. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those things that, um, you know, the sport has grown enough to where, you know, nobody knew that. So if you would come with me to the, the, the Dunbar series and watch some of the elites out there on three wheels and how fast they were going. Now, I don't know how good of a mountain biker you are. You're probably um, fast and really good and technical riding and all of that is, is, your, your, is your game. But even the strongest riders on two wheels were like having trouble keeping up with some of the, some of the guys and gals on three wheels. And so uh, a couple of them, in fact, were so fast that they grabbed some pros that were racing the downhill series as well and said, Hey, can you be the tail gunner for a couple of these people? Cause they're really fast. And we need, we need some serious skills for somebody to be able to keep up with them. Cause we all had a tail gunner with us. It was in case we tip over, you know, something happens, bike breaks or whatever to help us get out of the situation. So, and so it was one of those things where it was like, you know, a couple of the guys, a few of them, 
I, I, I was like, I don't know. I mean, I think there are a very, very, very small percentage of two wheeled mountain bikers that could go faster down that trail for sure that exists. But the majority of the mountain bike community as a whole was not going to go down that as fast as these guys were going down. And so it, it was just one of those where it was like, one, wow, the technology's come so far that it, it's allowed us to be able to progress to this level. Wow, the technology's gone so far that it's allowed us to tackle this kind of terrain. And then like, look at how the sport's grown from the, the Lasher ATH that I had with no suspension and uh, front wheel driven. And I would never take out on this trail to now like we're rallying down a, a legitimate downhill mountain bike course in the middle of a race series is, is something as big as the Dunbar series. And uh, we're all sharing the same finish lines and high fives and, 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 and having a blast. And so the industry's just grown in such a, to such a level to where it's opened up the door for athletes to be able to prove what people with disabilities are actually capable of. And when you have the right technology mixed with the right athletes, it is impressive at what people are capable of doing. And that really does change the game and show, I think when you see that, then your mind starts to shift on like, oh, adaptive doesn't mean it's a dumbed down trail. Like adaptive just means it's a badass athlete that's going to be ripping down the trail of a slightly different piece of equipment than everybody else. And so how do we accommodate that? You know, how do we, how do we open the door so that everybody can rip it how they want to rip it? And it's not about dumbing down the trail. It's just a different way to think about how you build a trail, which often is a little bit more sustainable of a trail and meets some standards that make it a little bit better for water flow and things like that. So it has perks beyond just opening the door for people with disabilities. You just stuck my head into a Top Gun reference too. And that is at the end of the original Top Gun, when, when Iceman looked at Tom Cruise and said, you can be my wingman anytime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was our tail gunners. Yep, exactly. That's why, that's what made me think of it. That's exactly it. Yeah. My, my, um, my girlfriend rode behind me, Caitlin, she's a, one hell of a mountain biker and she rode behind me and picked me up a few times when I fell over and helped me pick out lines while we were, I was challenging myself. I mean, I'm higher level spinal cord injury. I'm only a year and a half into using the bowhead reach and it's a significantly different piece of equipment than like what Jeremy uses or it's changed the whole adaptive mountain bike game. I mean, it's made it, it's 28 inches wide versus 36 inches wide. It's actually can handle side hills and cross slopes and things like that way up to a 30 degree cross slope. And you can still be sitting straight up, but you have to, you have to balance this thing, right? So it's the closest to being on two wheels while still being on three. And it has totally changed the game. They have the downhill version, which is all electric. And you're hardly going to use the throttle on it, but because you're going downhill. But they now have a crank version for your cross-country side of things. And they're also coming out with a delta version, which is one wheel in the front and two wheels in the rear. They just came out with it. And their level of engineering and what they created is, um, I mean, in, this is my humble opinion, it's far superior than what has gone on in the past, which is the beauty of progression, right? It's one person built the first one-off hand cycle is what it was called. And then um, that never really went any further than what the original design for the one-off was. Then Jake O'Connor stepped in with reactive adaptations and said, hey, I kind of want to do that. I think I can do it a little bit better. And he started making a, a far superior version of the one-off, right? And then Lasher stepped in and was like, well, what about the one wheel in the front and two in the rear versus two in the front and one in the rear? And then um, Lasher came out with their version and Sport On stepped in and started creating some more full suspension stuff. And 
Then Jake was like, well, hey, I got to get on the full suspension game with reactive adaptations. And so he did that. And he made a few different styles of bikes. And that opened up the door to a lot more people with disabilities. And, and then so you look, and now there's like this quite the spider web of equipment out there for people to choose from. And then Bowhead is the newest of all of them, sat back and went, okay, what are the issues with the, all these bikes? They're all great designs. They've all done great work and they've opened the door for people with disabilities. But we still struggle with trail width. We still struggle with cross slopes. We still struggle in all these other different areas that these bikes um, can't accommodate quite yet. So how do we solve those problems? And then they came out with Bowhead Reach, which solved a lot of problems and opened the door for me personally. I, I've done more in the last year and a half. I've seen more, gone further, done more in the last year and a half than all 12 years combined as a wheelchair user because of the Bowhead. And then they were like, well, cool, this one's all throttle. Let's make a crank version. Okay, cool. Let's see. If we, and so they just, it's just, so awesome to see how everybody feeds off each other and takes what somebody else created and said, that's awesome. And they use it. And they're like, how can we make this? It just takes one person to go, how can we do this a little bit better? Right. And that's the same thing as with athletes. The Dunbar series was great for my personal pro- progression because I was surrounded by a bunch of other people that were way better than me. And so I got to see how they ride, how they have their bikes set up. Um, how fast they really can go, how fast the equipment can really handle the terrain, what it's really capable of. And, and being able to see that, I was able to go, wow, I'm going to apply that to myself now. And I, after 10 days of three races and hanging out with people that are a lot better than me and awesome human beings, I left there a much better mountain biker than I was when I showed up. And that's the same level of progression as what some very few, but some within the industry of building the equipment has fed off each other and done. And so that's, I mean, that's the importance of community right there, because without it, you don't get that progression. If we're all just out doing our own thing and we're not sharing how we do it and we're not helping other people and we're not getting involved to be a supporter in the industry in some way, if we, if we didn't have the community as, as diverse as it is and different ways to help and be involved, um, none of us grow. And so when you look at the history, it's pretty rich and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, somebody should write a book about it for sure, because it's, it's pretty neat to, to, I followed it now for 12 years and. Um, the changes I've seen in 12 years are remarkable. It's pretty cool. We're going to stay on this topic. When you, <laughs> when you came back from the Dunbar series, what was your first trail ride like back on the trails you knew? Oh, okay. So that's a really great point you just brought up. So I am a huge fan of when you get to go out somewhere and progress and then you come back to your home turf and see what that progression really is like. Because now you have something to compare it to. Right. And I've done this. I, I'm a paraglider as well. And I've had many opportunities to be able to do that and go back to where I learned and be, and, but it went and flew all over the West or whatever. And then brought those skills and went back to where I learned. And I was like, wow, I am like, I, I actually progressed quite a bit. You get to see it. Fine, right. Cause it's hard when you're always on something new. So Dunbar was, I was faced with something new the whole time and really hard. I mean, I could see the progression on each trail as I did each lap, as I was um, practicing for race day for each course. Um, but when I brought it back to Jackson, and this is a perfect tie-in to what digging for answers is all about. But I brought it back to Jackson and I went and rode the trail deepest, darkest. And um, Caitlin was behind me and I was ripping faster than I've ever ripped on that trail. And I was carving turns way better than I've ever carved turns. And I was kicking out the rear tire and sliding around some of the turns to, to make it so I could go even faster and make those turns happen. And was slapping the rear tire on some berms and that kind of thing. And Anyway, we got, it, I was just having a ball. I was like, and, and I was just in the zone and I was just like, cause I knew that trail really, really well. Cause I rode it so many times. And now I had new skills to bring to it. 
And we got to the bottom and Caitlin looked at me and she was like, where did that come from? Like that, you, you just ripped that trail. I can hardly keep up with you. That was way, you ripped that trail way better than you've ever ripped it. Like you were, you were legitimately carving turns and, and she was just like, that's good. I can't believe it. And it was all because I pushed myself so hard at the Dunbar series and asked a lot of questions and was paying attention to what all these people were doing that were better than me. Instead of, I think sometimes you can get around people that are that good and you can shy away and not want to put yourself out there because you know, you're not as good, but me knowing I was not as good as all of them gave me the opportunity to, to, to really focus on how they're doing things and you know, what, what lines they choose on the mountain, what the, what the bowhead itself is really capable of doing. And that just took my progression to a whole nother level. So it was a really cool moment to bring it back to Jackson and, 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 and see what that 10 days of mountain biking in BC really did for me, which was a lot of progression to the point to where now I'll go for the first time ever. Like I I'm 100% comfortable taking my adaptive mountain bike out and going and um, riding trails by myself. Now there's certain trails I won't cause they're too technical or whatever. The risk of tipping over is higher. And so I don't, I don't um, want to take those risks on like deepest darkest, for example, which is the, the newest trail up at Jackson hole. I know that trail so well that I'm like, I can go ride that. And I might not go quite as fast as I would if I had people with me, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll dial it back a little bit just to be in a little bit more control. But that's another thing that came out of that whole thing, which was a level of independence I didn't really know existed. Uh, and so all of a sudden now it's like, I'll go ride some downhill trails by myself. There's a, it's a resort. So there's other people around, there's bike patrol and stuff like that. So I'm doing it as smart as I possibly can, just in case I run into trouble. But, um, but also some cross country trails that are out there as well that I'll take my dog on so he can go for a run that I just would have been really afraid to do before. So. Yeah. It's like uh, my whole world has been opened up since just the, the 10 days and that continues to happen. And that's what's so cool about adaptive mountain biking now is like the piece of equipment I'm on. It's my skills that are holding me back. Not the, not the equipment itself. And that's a unique place to find. I've, I've personally never had that with adaptive mountain biking until getting into what I'm doing now with the piece of equipment that I'm on. It's, it's only, it's purely my skills holding me back. And um, that's, what we all are in, you know, that makes it a really inclusive activity then. So we're all just trying to get better. Yeah. And you know, it's the, the bow had piece of equipment, honestly, like that piece of equipment didn't pop on my radar until I was doing the research for the Annika Wade interview, you know, and knowing that she got a bowhead pretty early on and had to like learn how to use it. It's, you know, and start, start all over again. And, and it's, it's awesome to hear you talk about the progression. It's awesome to hear you talk about the capability of that piece of equipment. And at the same time, I'm sitting here wondering, okay, what's next for this? Like, what's the next, like, I think about that just generally speaking as a, as a mountain biker, like I look back in the day of when, what I learned how to ride on as far as a bicycle goes and initial mountain bikes to what, just what has happened in the last five years in the progression of that with modern geometry, better suspension, like all the things that are just pushing that the sport so much more. And so to, to look at that, but then to look at it from the adaptive perspective, like what next do you think you're at the best, but you, the reality is like there's going to be something better from an equipment perspective. It's never ending. It's, it's never ending. And I mean, even if you look at like what e-bikes are allowing people to do now, so that's a totally new thing, right? That got introduced into the mountain bike world and whatever we could go on the endless debate on that one, but e-bikes are here. 
I'm not going anywhere. You don't have to worry about going there with with me. We talk about it quite a bit on the show. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it'll it'll be an endless debate. And and but but the end of the, the at the end of it all, nobody can deny that e-bikes haven't opened up the opportunity for a whole lot of people that normally wouldn't have access to being on mountain bikes. And that is the beauty behind e-bikes. And uh, you know, I know a lot of people that have disabilities. They're able to still walk around, but they're not able to two-wheel bike, especially on mountain biking, where it's significantly more challenging to climb a hill than it is on a road bike, you know, they wouldn't be able to be in there if it wasn't for the two, the, the e-bike that they have or the e-motor that they have on their, on their mountain bike. And, um, and then you look at it on like the professional level. So I think we're going to see a level of progression in the pro athletes that's going to skyrocket here pretty quickly because now pros can take these really nice downhill e-bikes and get three times as many laps in that day um, in an area where they have to bike up to get the downhill and, and get more time on the trail focused on their skills, right? So now you're gonna see progression, I think, go up significantly. I know a lot of people that are really, really good mountain bikers. They have both an e-bike and a non-e-bike and, um, and they use their e-bike wherever they can so that they can burn more laps and get more time in that day on the trail. And so um, it's, I mean, that piece of technology is changing the game, right? I think in a positive direction. We have more people on trails now than we've ever had. And so that's amazing to me. Like these trails are for everyone. They're not just for the most elite. And so um, let's make it work for everyone, right? That comes with both universal design and the technology that's out there for us to use. So, I, you know, that's where the bowhead is the endless, the bowhead's like the endless debate, kind of like e-bikes are in the two-wheel two bike world where they're like, well, it's all throttles so you're on a dirt bike. It's like, well, no, let's think about that question for a second or that little bit of a debate. So you've got a bike that, uh, a trike that, yes, it's all throttle, okay? So if all you do is focus on that and all you do is focus on the cranking of a bike and that's how you define a bike versus a, a motorbike, um, sure, okay, I can get on board with that if that's the only way you focus on it. But now if you focus on it in all the different ways that you can move a two-wheel bike, so the, the bike body separation, the way you can lean a bike over, the way you can carve turns, the way you can um, really drag out the, the rear tire to, to you know, slap a berm or go around sharper turns and stuff like that. The way the wheels are built and how you're supposed to actually be putting weight through those wheels, right? And so the way this goes, the, the way that you're distributing through wheels should be going vertically through it. And that's why you lean the bike over. It's still going like through the wheel top to bottom. But when your wheel's fixed and it's straight up and down and you're making a really sharp turn, well, now you have the side force hitting the wheel. That's how you taco wheels, right? They're not built to be structurally super strong to take side impact. The, the energy really is from, to go from top to bottom through the wheel, through the hub, through the spokes. And so now you have the bowhead where that's what it's doing. You lean it over and you've got the, the you're using the wheels, how wheels were specifically designed you're carving turns the way two-wheel bikes carve turns. And so now you have all of these other elements that come into play where it's like, that's all the other things that a two-wheel bike does, right? That's beyond the cranking. So that goes back to the question, is it just cranking versus just throttle? Or do we factor in all of the other pieces of what comes with handling a two-wheel bike and see how closely the bowhead that's all throttle also matches up though in all those other areas for a two-wheel bike. So then to me, I see it as, well, no, this is, this is a mountain bike. And I just need this design and this motor so that me as a C7 quadriplegic 
can be on the trail ripping it as, as, as well as I can now and see a world of progression versus being held back from like the original bike that I was on, um, which again, will go down in history as something that changed the game for people with disabilities. It was the perfect bike for its time. But to see where we're at now and what people can do on these things, I mean, yeah, that debate, I'm, I'm kind of ready for that debate to be over and just like, let's just support, start supporting technology that's helping people with disabilities do more than they've ever done before. And uh, thankfully, we have amendments within the Wilderness Act and, and, um, and that, that protects people with disabilities to be able to use this equipment so that we can get out there in the woods with all of our peers that don't have disabilities and all go rip trails together. So at the end of the day, it's about putting tires on dirt and how do we open up that door to as many people as possible. And the new technology is allowing that to open up. And by no means is my bike, because it's all e-assist motor, is it easy? I new staff member, Teton Adaptive, I took out uh, Wednesday, two days ago, her first ride, able-bodied athlete. Let's go ride the bowhead. We'll go up the single track trail. And you got a couple rocks and roots and stuff like that. You're going to have to climb over and then we're going to have to descend it. And uh, she tipped over a couple of times. She uh, was struggling to get around turns. Anyway, got down to the bottom and was like, that thing is so challenging to use. That was, I'm like, worked, I'm tired, you know? And, and, and it was one of those things where it's like, able-bodied or not, you're not getting on the bowhead and ripping it. You get on the bowhead and you go, oh boy, oh my gosh, this is going to take some time. Like, you actually have to develop skills for it. So, yeah, seeing that to where it's challenging for everyone is pretty unique in itself as well. Challenging for everyone, but capable at the same time. Well, and you highlighted that in the movie Digging for Answers. Yeah. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it. Yep. For sure. And so that was that, and that was something that I had taken away from that also. Throughout this interview, you've, you've kind of, you've, you've alluded to some specific timelines on when things happened and when, and kind of the progression of the adaptive wheelchair and, or the adaptive, the adaptive mountain bike, I mean. And one of the things I want to bring up that was also happening in a parallel sense was the progression of trail building in general and now using, and we are, this was happening before 2011, but this is when around that time was probably when it really became more of a tool is that is a mini excavator. And with that, the mini excavator, you know, that, that did a bunch of things for trail development in terms of accelerating trail development, being able to build, being, I mean, being able to actually dig rip balls out of the ground, pick up rocks and boulders and do a lot of things that you couldn't do with hand builds or even with mini skid steers, which were used before mini excavators. And w- along with that is a certain width that you need to have to get that thing through the woods. Right. Yeah. You know, so that yeah. also is happening at the same time. Yeah. You're nailing it. And so that the, the, when I got involved in this in 2000, uh, more like 2012, um, ah, I'll even say 2013 um, and, and started working. And it really was like conversations with TV tap. So Teton Valley trails and pathways, which is who puts on the White Hill rendezvous at Grand Targhee. And it's a fundraiser for them. So they can keep building awesome trails around the Teton Valley. And uh, you know, I started chatting with them and this is 2013, the first time at the White Hill rendezvous. And we're talking about the width of the equipment. We're talking about turning radiuses and we're talking about all the things that come with adaptive mountain biking. And that's when I learned that, you know, years prior was when the equipment you're speaking about right now is what was starting to be used more and more and more. And then it was like, well, wow, what a perfect time to start having these conversations. Cause now we're not asking people to do 
a million more digs with the shovel to make it wider. Now we've got a machine that is just making it wider. And more and more people are and trail building organizations are using those machines because it speeds up the, the process of building a trail. Um, it allows them to do things that really have been super challenging to do on trails before. So creating um, new features or getting some things out of the way that are in the way on that trail that would be really challenging to do with a shovel. And it just is making a trail bed that, that's wider. Um, and that's the direction it's going from what I've noticed in the trail building industry. So it's like now, okay, so if you guys are using all that equipment that's making trails wider, we're talking about just a couple little changes to the design and now it's universally designed. So the, the big ones, the width, well, now if you're using a mini excavator, you know, now we're, now, now we're at the width, we've met it. Now we're doing that. So now it's just about turning radiuses and making sure there isn't spots where there aren't two trees or two rocks that are too close together. And, and whenever there is situations like that or other features that are being be built on the trails, you know, make a, make an alternative route around it. that's wide enough for an adaptive athlete or anybody else that's not skilled enough to hit those features um, to go around, uh, you know? So then it's like, now you can build, you can still build this six inch wide, you know, ramp to go up that's out of wood on the side of a trail or even in the middle of the trail, or whatever. You can have all those kind of weird features and jumps and gaps and all the things that come with these types of trails that also have an alternative route around them. And now you've got a trail that works for everyone. It's just a few tweaks here and there. And so you're not building a whole new trail. You're modifying the design of which you had before. And so you're not forcing people to hit every single feature on the trail. You give people options. And when people have options, it opens the doors. And even, you know, you look at it like it's really good to ride a downhill trail first and not hit all the features and I'm up. And when you have an alternative route that allows you to do that, you can I'm up and roll by and flow through smoothly. And then on the next one, be like, okay, now I'm going to hit the first couple, but that, that third one looked weird or whatever. And you can, you can warm up to being able to eventually line the whole trail up and hit that feature. but it doesn't take anything away. And I think that's the big part of the debate is that there's a lot of people still in the mountain bike community on two wheels that think it's going to be taking away the challenges that present themselves on the trails that they're so used to and the idea of trail building in the way that they're used to it. And we're not taking anything away. Like we're just making it to where more people have an opportunity to be on that trail. And so it's going to be just as challenging. You can go, you know, go rip it as hard as you want. And so can everyone else, but with skills. So it's still going to be a black trail, you know, or a double black or whatever. So somebody who's new to a mountain bike is not getting down that trail you know, they're going to still be playing on the greens. So skill levels still have to come into play. We're not dumbing it down. Yeah. And then for regular mountain biking, bar widths have gotten wider too. And so those yeah. people that want to really rip is like, Oh wait, I can't actually fit between those two trees now because I'm now running 780 millimeter wide bars or 800 millimeter wide bars. <laughs> Which is the same width as my bowhead. It, exactly. You know? So it's like, if your handlebars can fit through it, the bowhead fits through it. Now that doesn't open the door for all the other equipment that the majority of people are on. And so um, you know, we still have to think about all that too. We can't only focus on the bowhead when we're talking about trail design, because that doesn't include every other piece of adaptive mountain bike equipment that people are on. Cause not everybody wants to, or can ride a bowhead and they need, they might need or want a different style of piece of equipment that, that accommodates their disability a little bit better. So, or their style of riding or their skill level or whatever it might be. And so, there is, um, that's why there's just a, there's a need to make sure like trails that are built 
40, 42 inches wide. You know, the trail bed is built that wide, which is what the mini excavators and everything are, that they need that much space to get down the trail. Those trails, even if there's overgrowth on the sides, we can bushwhack with our, with our tires, the, the, the two that are wider. We just need enough space. And so um, I've had a lot of conversations with trail companies and they'll say, well, how wide? How wide is the equipment? And I'll say, well, the widest equipment is 36 inches wide. And they'll go, okay, so we need to make a 36 inch wide trail. And I'm like, no, no, we need like 40 or 42 inches. 42 would be preferred. Um, because if you think about it, what if you only had a trail that was the exact same, like 2.3 inches of your tire for the entire trail, you had to ride on a two by four. That's not going to be fun for any two wheel biker either. And when you only have it 36 inches, you have no wiggle room for rocks that you got to maneuver around off camber sections that have to be addressed a little bit differently. Um, you're always riding the edge and then you're one wheel slip away from going over, not to mention snowfall, rain, weather, things like that. They go on throughout the year that it's only going to take one storm to take that 36 inches and make it 33 inches in certain sections. So now you have a trail that doesn't work. Um, so you're, you know, you're one, literally one storm away from taking that adaptive trail or that universally designed trail and making it not work anymore. So you put all that work into it and it's over in one rain, you know, so 42 inches is, is what we're, what we're really trying to push for whenever possible. And there'll be certain trails that are built on certain terrain. That it's just not going to work. Um, but when it's possible, we should be doing that. I think that's my opinion. We're going to get back to deepest darkness, but while my brain is in this place, before I lose this thought, I want to ask you if you've been back at all to ride any of the stuff that has, has recently been developed in Northern Minnesota. And I ask that because I've done a whole lot of podcasts on that, which is in the, in the iron range. And I just actually recorded an interview with the, uh, the main project manager designer of all that stuff about two hours before we record this interview. And they built like 75 to 85 miles of trail in three years all had to be machine built because you can't get that volume down in that time frame. Totally. I haven't. Um, it's on the list. I go home. I, I, the unfortunate part of when I go home is always over Christmas. So when I get back to Minneapolis, it's not really mountain bike season, no. but I got a couple of buddies that mountain bike quite a bit up in Northern Minnesota. And they've been telling me about how awesome it's gotten up there, both around where you're talking about the iron range and, and also over in like Duluth and yep. those areas. And, and that's great terrain for mountain biking up there. So, you know, pretty hilly, rocky, rooty, techy. Sounds like there's some good flow trails up there as well now that they've built. I want to get up there because Minnesota, I never really had a lot of that before. So it's pretty cool now that there's, I mean, there's always been trails, but I don't think it's ever been known as like a state to go and visit for mountain biking. But now there's like something up in the northern Minnesota area, which is a beautiful part of the state uh, that is calling my name a little bit, like, let's go see what's going on up there. See what Minnesota's done in the last few years. Yeah. And they've, they've actually, they've really became a, a leader in terms of a state and especially state government funded trail building, purpose-built mountain bike specific trail funding and trail development. It's, it's pretty awesome to see. Well, let's get back to uh, deepest, darkest, because that was the, that was the trail, the specific trail that was filmed that was featured in the, in the movie Digging for Answers with Universal Trail Design. And I'd like to know since, since that trail has been built, what's the reception been from everybody? you know, and, and how is just so we can kind of build on what we've been talking about with yeah. this whole thing. Yeah. That, um, Jacksonville Mountain Resort did a phenomenal job on that film. John Bowers did awesome with directing that the, 
the, the from the cinematographers to the um, the storytellers, people in post production. I, I really was um, impressed with what they put together, and um, am honored to be a part of that film. So that that was pretty neat. That, that had such a strong team, and yeah. So they so digging for answers. What sparked that? So I had started a Teton Adaptive uh, in 2020. And right at the beginning of summer, I, I, I think I moved here in, in uh, April or May or something like that. And then once the mountain bike season kicked in up Jackson Mountain Resort, Ranyan, the trail manager up there at the resort, reached out and said, hey, um, I got a buddy. He just sustained a spinal cord injury. I manage all the trails here up at the mountain. And, you know, seeing my buddy go through this kind of made me realize that maybe we're not doing as good of a job as we could be doing to be able to support people with disabilities. And, he's, and so, you know, it's really unfortunate that Pierre, who's a buddy of mine now as well, got injured. Obviously don't want to see anybody get injured or sustain spinal cord injuries, but they do happen and they're always going to happen and we're never going to escape that. But to see somebody take that negative situation and, 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 you know, shine a brighter light on it and say, wait, could we be doing better? You know? And, and so Randon reached out and said, I want to learn more about the adaptive mountain bikes. And I want to, you know, see how well the trails work here at the resort, just in general, all the trails. And so he's like, so I, you know, maybe you can meet me up here with your adaptive bike and I can like follow you around and we can see, you know, how well your bike works. I was like, I got a better idea. Let's get you on one. And so him and I went and rode around and we tested out a bunch of trails and we found out what works and doesn't work. And he had a really awesome quote at the end, um, not in the documentary, but the end of our bike rides that we did where he, he just said, you know, all the things that I thought were going to be issues turned out to be non-issues and all the things that turned out to be issues were the things that I thought were going to be non-issues. And so he was like, his perspective was changed because he didn't know what he didn't know until he got on the equipment. And that's why I think it's so important. Like, I think at this point we should have um, every trail company out there that's building trails should have to go and experience what the adaptive equipment is like so that that's how you're going to implement universal design. Because if you don't, then it'd be like building a mountain bike trail when you're you know, you only cross country ski. You're like, if you're not a mountain biker, how are you going to build a good mountain bike trail? Well, you build a good mountain bike trail because you understand mountain biking. Well, if you want to get into universal design, you need to understand the other equipment that you're trying to include within that design that you're making. And Ranyan did that. And that was what was really cool about that process. And so he then took that information and um, went back to the drawing board a little bit with Deepest Darkest, which was going to be their, turned out at that time, was their, the biggest trail that they had cut down a mountain and the one that they were putting the most energy into. And um, he tweaked a few things here and there, not much, didn't really take much, but he tweaked a few things and yeah, it turned into deepest, darkest. And it's the raddest trail up on the mountain right now, you know, and they're building more and they're doing more. And so it's, you know, it's only going to get better from here because now that mindset's there. Now the idea of universal design has been um, implemented within how they approach trail design and access on the mountain in general. So you know, Jacksonville Mountain Resort is, is, in my opinion, set, starting to set the standards on that shift in mindset to make things from the get-go work as, as well as they can for everyone. And yeah, so Deepest Arcus, it's fun, it's fast, it's flowy. It's not, it's not a tech trail, it's a flow trail. It's kind of like a, a, a Whistler-esque kind of trail. And, um, and it's, just, it's just super fun. It's one that you're like laughing the whole way down with your buddies, there's, there's areas you can catch air. Um, you can also choose not to catch air in those areas. And it just depends how fast you want to rip it. And so it really does open the door 
for, you know, I've seen pros hop on that trail ending it with a huge smile and high fives and laughing, laughing the whole time how fun that is picking lines that nobody else is hitting on the trail and skipping sections of it because they're jumping off of one berm and entering into the next or whatever. Like they're looking at the trail in a really creative way and making some cool things happen all the way down to people who are like, you know, I've been practicing on the lower, shorter green and blues kind of want to see what it's like to step it up a little bit and they can go there and they have options and lines within that trail as well, where they can, they can go a little bit slower on the first one, a little faster and a little faster after that. And so it's a cool trail. And that film is one that really highlights the idea of universal design and what that can do and how that can open up a community and bring a community together to where we all have access to our public lands. Cause it's one thing we have to think about in this idea. We have to st- step away from the selfish mindset of I've always known trails this way. I don't want trails to change. Change is hard for people to wrap their heads around. Right. But we're talking about public lands. So the public is everyone. So everyone should at least have the opportunity to get out there. Their skills might dictate if that trail is something they should be on, but it should be done in a way where it is open to the public and not just the most elite. And that's where we're at now in these conversations is we're talking about public lands. It's on Jackson Mountain Resorts. It's on National Forest. You know, most of the trails around here sit on National Forest land. That National Forest land is built. It's there for everyone. So let's open that up so that everyone can have an opportunity to play on it. This film does a good job at highlighting what that can look like, how easy it actually is, and then what the outcome of that actually is, which is, is, it's beautiful. Like what what that trail turned into is, is, as far as what it's done for mountain bikers up at the resort is really cool. It's unique. Yeah. And you just, you keep spurring my brain on different things that have happened to me in times, including watching Seinfeld and Top Gun. But <laughs> this is a different one. This is uh, in 2018, we, in lacrosse, we, we brought in a professional trail building company to do the first, I'm going to say first ex- mini excavator machine belt trails you know, and they were supposed to be that. And I remember I was out doing trail work or leading trail work with a guy that probably would quantify himself or qualify himself as being a mountain bike purist. And he was just, he was adamant about how all trails should be hand built. Excavators do not belong in the woods and just like trying to light me up over the whole situation. Right. And I'm just like, you know what? That's great that you have that mentality. I love riding hand built trails. I don't have any I don't have any issues riding hand-built trails. And I also love riding really awesome flow trails. The reality is at the end of the day, this, those trails I knew and other people knew that that would open up opportunity, more opportunity for everybody. Even if that's just getting a new person into the sport who didn't, I mean, that's the last thing you want to do is throw a new mountain biker into a double black diamond, single track trail. They're not going to come back, Yeah, you know, and that's exactly what that did. And when you're talking about, deepest darkest that just brought me back to that conversation I had with that individual. It's like, Hey, like this, you take the elitist mentality out of this. Yeah. Well, and that's what they're doing now at, at the resort. They've got some other trails that are, that are being built. They got some tech trails that are being built with that same idea. So it's not all flow. Like, like it doesn't have to all be flow trails. Like I'm not, I, I flow trails are fun. Catching air here and there is fun for me, but I really like bouncing down rocks and roots. And that's, that's more the game I like to play. The techier the trail, the more fun I'm having. And that same idea, universal trail design, um, can be implemented in those trails too. It doesn't have to be this perfectly smooth, fun, flowy trail down the mountain. They're all fun. All of it's a blast, right? And so it's it's about 
creating, I mean, that's what the, you know, you look at the whole mountain bike industry and the way trails are designed. Um, there's a wide variety of trails. They all can have universal design implemented into them. And you know, that's the, that's the thing about, um, I got two things I'll hit on this. That's also the thing that elitist mentality is also always the debate that I find with e-bikes, right? It's, that's always a part of that. So if we can strip that out of it and look at the facts, like get the ego out of there, like, cool. You can be on your single speed mountain bike and climb 4,000 vert, whatever. Awesome. Proud of you, buddy. That's sweet. Like not everyone can do that. Let's just be real. Not everyone can do that. So if you want to see access grow, you want to see the industry go grow. You want to see the community grow. You know, you have to step out of the elitist mindset and open the door for more people. You have to. And I found and this, I didn't touch on this part of your question earlier, but this ties into that really well, which is when deepest darkest was released. And I mean, um, digging for answers was released the film. I kind of went around and went on pink bike and it went on a bunch of other websites and it went on, um, you know, all these other, all these other outlets out there. And, uh, and I was just like, you know, this is, um, funny to read the comments because most people like by most, I mean like 98% were like, this is amazing. So cool. Love this universal design. Haven't ever thought of it in that way. All kinds of really awesome comments. Love the bikes, love, adaptive equipment loved like all of that kind of stuff right and uh they they just you know people were into it but then you had a couple in the mix this is cool and all but let's not forget we're never going to make all the trails work like let's give somebody one or two trails at the bottom of the hill but we don't we don't need to make all our trails this way we're going to ruin mountain biking if we do that mountain biking is over if we start doing that the challenge disappears if we're over that but if we go that route and it's like i i i did comment on a few of them and not that I cared about changing the perspective of the person that made the comment, but more so that when people are reading it, they can see facts below it that are based off of just the evidence of what we found with building trails in a way that work for everyone and not based off of this one elitist opinion on that. And so the, the overwhelming amount of people like in the beginning of when that film released, it was, it was overwhelming the amount of people that actually were super supportive about all of that and the idea behind it. But there's always that 2%, you know, that want to chime in and they're afraid of change. But they're the same people probably that are afraid of change in like every way. They probably fought the Americans with Disabilities Act back in the day. They're probably the same people with other forms of civil rights that have taken place for other minority groups that didn't want to see the change. You know, they're the people that don't like change. So they probably hated the Internet when it first came out and computers and, you know, credit card machines and whatever else in society. It's just like, look, man, we're trying to open it up where more people have opportunities. Go ride on your private land if you want your own private spot, you know, buy a chunk of land, build some hand-built trails and uh, have a ball, you know, but more people should have opportunities to this kind of thing. And, and I found it to be really amazing how supportive quite literally the majority, like the vast majority of the community is on seeing people with disabilities be able to put tires on dirt alongside of them. Most people think it's awesome. So I try my best to not focus on those few um, because if we had to put things up for a vote, their, their vote's going to be pretty small at the end of the day. Oh yeah. Well, I'm bringing it back to something you said early on when you're talking about the Dunbar series, I can, I can all but guarantee you and you can verify this, that those trails were not built when flow trails were being built. No, I mean, that's like where it started, right? That's where that, that's where free riding started. You go up in BC and it's just on another level. And 
And that's, and that was my first time I've been up there to do a bunch of paragliding, but I'd never done any mountain biking up there. Cause I'd never had a mountain bike that I could really use up there with my disability. Right. So I always just brought my paragliding equipment and trust me, I have a ton of fun paragliding. No, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'd never really spend any time on the trails. And so this, this series that we just did the Dunbar series, that was really interesting to go and see what they've done with their trails, which have been, it's been going on up there, you know, way longer than it has in the States. And, um, they're doing it in a way that just works for everyone. And it's not every trail. That's the other thing is it's like, like there's the, when we were riding Panorama Resort, um, we started in the same spot, all everybody, able-bodied, disabled, didn't matter. Everybody started in the same spot. Um, and then it went down through the first couple of turns and then it split and two wheeled riders went to the left and three wheeled riders went to the right. We still had a very technical trail that we had to descend for about a thousand feet till it joined back up to the, where the two wheel riders come back into play. And we, then we shared the same course for another distance. And then it had one more split up into the finish line because they had a couple of massive jumps or one massive jump. that was just a bit much to bite off on with a, uh, or bite off of for the, the three wheel trikes. And then, uh, so we went around that and, and then, but we all finished in the same spot. So, and then when you looked at the terrain, they were riding for their downhill course. Now, was it wide enough? Sure. Yeah. You could have taken three wheels down it, but it was, you know, when you've got like five, six, seven foot cliff drops and stuff like that throughout it, that's a bit much to bite off of with a trike. And so it was even interesting to look at, some of the sections of that trail that I could see where it was like, wow, you could actually still ride the trike through that, but it's got some things in it that are just, I think a a, a bit more than what you're going to want to do on a trike, just the way you have to launch off some things. And so, but you know, they separated the courses where it needed to be separated, where two wheels could go out and push themselves as hard as they could push themselves. And, um, and they gave three wheel athletes the, you know, the same challenges, just, you know, making it to where it's appropriately challenging for people who are rocking three wheels. But the other thing that was really cool about that race was they, they really did, I think, whether they know it or not, but my take, my personal take was they looked at it and go, cool, you guys want to race downhill in the Dunbar series? Here you go. You want to race with us? This is what you got to go down. And like the first time I went down Pano, I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm going to get down. Like I got down and I was like, I was pretty scared. I was like, that was a lot for me. And then some guys were going up to do another lap and I wasn't going to do another one that day. And I was like, my nerves were getting the best of me. And I was like, you know, I think I got to go do another one. I just had to go. Cause otherwise it's going to be in my head all night. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow with this weird energy. And I went and did one more. And then also I was like, Whoa, this isn't as bad as I thought it was. And then the next day we had our, a couple of laps that were for the training for the course. So the course was closed and it was just for training. And did it a couple more times. And I was like, okay, okay. Like I can do this. Am I going to win it? Absolutely not. You know, like, but can I survive it? Sure. Is it, am I capable of doing this? For sure. And then I had my fastest time on race day. And I was, I was really appreciative to the whole way they designed that race series, which was, this is downhill mountain biking. So if you're going to come here and downhill mountain bike, we're not giving you the green trail. We're doing downhill mountain biking here. So I like that they stressed, if you're going to sign up for it as an adaptive athlete, um, they stress it the same way for two wheeled athletes. You got to be good at what you do, you know, otherwise there's other races out there that are more entry level and yeah, they treated us like athletes, just like everyone else, which is super neat. One of the things I ask everybody 
with this, this is going to go into the general side of things, but one of the things I ask everybody with this podcast is what does a great mountain bike community mean for you? Like what are the ingredients in a great mountain bike community in your opinion? Great mountain bike community. Everybody always says a, a microbrewery, just, just to be clear. A microbrewery? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's probably part of it. Uh, you know, I think, I think a really good mountain bike community, and I would put this in this part would be for any community really is, is being welcoming, you know, and, and I do think mountain bikers are for the most part really welcoming, which has been a cool part about being, you know, part of this community for as long as I have. So I would say, you know, being welcoming with good energy, high fives, smiles, that sort of thing. Open-minded, really good mountain bike community. This one, this is a pretty general though, because like with any outdoor sports industry, like the more open-minded you are, the more innovation gets wrapped around it. That's why, you know, trails are significantly different now than they were 20 years ago. And, um, and that's why the sports progress. So, you know, continuing to have really open-minded people, both as leaders and as you know, just people within the community that are the riders, um, is pretty amazing. And, um, you know, I'd probably leave it at those two welcoming and open-minded when you, those are pretty like, you know, key ingredients for progression. And if, if you're not, especially being open-minded, if you're not being open-minded, you know, you're not going to in life in general, you're just not going to progress very far. So, um, you know, if I wasn't open-minded, I would have sat back and said, yeah, no, I'm probably right. The rest of my life's going to be in a nursing home, depending on everyone around me, but part of all help me open my mind to say something, something's possible that I don't know what that is yet. And, um, you know, I went with that and that turned into, you know, the better part of this conversation, which is less about the accident, more about awesome trails and races and, you know, building inclusion and that sort of thing. So, you know, one of the areas that I think has been really fun to see that open-mindedness and welcoming side of our community is how do we make proper trail signage so that people with disabilities know what they're getting into. And so the other endless debate that's been going on in the adapter world for a long time is, well, everyone else has green, black, blue, double black. So how do we do that for people with disabilities? So how do we have like that adaptive green, blue, black, double black, right? And so when, it, when that conversation starts, we go down this rabbit hole. Well, you know, these are the features that make it this and that for whatever level you want to call it. And then it's like, well, what about somebody that's on a lasher versus somebody that's on a bowhead? Well, now the, the green or the, the, you know, the black trail on a, on a lasher is the green trail on a bowhead. Okay. And then what about somebody with a different disability? So you got somebody who's a L2 paraplegic versus somebody who's a C6 quadriplegic. Well, how do you include that into that rating system? And then, and then, so that conversation continues to grow and grow and grow. And before we know it, we're in this super complicated area of, well, now I don't even know where we started and I don't even know how we would rate this when we try to include everybody within this rating system. And then, so now the conversation, which has been proven to work really well with the open-minded folks within the trail building side of the industry is not so much about rating it, keep the ratings that already exist on it. But let's provide information. So at the trailhead, we have average trail width. You know, we have average cross slope or max cross slope. We have uh, the the grades, average grade versus the steepest grade, steepest grade on the trail, and things like that. Right. So five or six different things that are labeled on the on the trailhead sign. It would allow someone like myself or anybody, for that matter, to be able to go and look at that and go, well, 
the, the minimal width of the trail is um, 12 inches. Well, I'm on a 28 inch wide machine. So that, that trail is probably not going to work for me, you know? And then you go to the next sign and you're like, okay, well, the minimum width is, is, um, is, is 32 inches. My, my piece of equipment's 28 inches wide. Um, the steepest grades, this and that, the max cross slopes, you know, these numbers. Okay, cool. Well, all of that seems to match up to what my piece of equipment that I'm using is capable of doing. And then from there, you bring your skills into play. Well, it's a green, blue, black, double black within the general standards of what those definitions are between each one of those ratings. Well, I know what a green trail is in general. I know what a double black is in general. So um, now I can apply what the rating that was already established on that trail is to the facts of what's going on within the trail that's very objective. And now I can apply that to my skills and say, this is the trail for me. So it's giving people with disabilities the, the best opportunity to make an educated guess on whether or not they should try this new trail or not. And what's been really cool is when we've had this conversation with a number of different trail companies from all over the country, they're like, oh, that makes way more sense. And that's actually fairly easy for us to do. Like we can go and measure these things on a trail and provide this kind of information. And, and then it just ties in. And then, and then you're not leaving it up to, you know, trail forks is great. Awesome tool. Learning trails, seeing what's going on, seeing photos and all that. It's amazing. However, sometimes it's pretty subjective to whoever rated that trail. So there, you know, and then the area you live in, ratings change. So I went and rode double blacks in, uh, around Minneapolis. And I was like, this is like an easy blue at, you know, out West, you know? So then it's like, so then how's that trail reason? Like even in the two wheel world, it doesn't really match up. So you could be riding double blacks in, in Minneapolis and, and just have a huge chip on your shoulder and be like, I am an awesome mountain biker. And then go up to BC and ride a double black and be like, I, I am way in over my head right now. Right. And so that trail information really does help everyone. And that open-mindedness that the trails crews have, have been throwing at us when we, when we're like, this is what would really help. Um, they're, they're pretty psyched on the idea of like, yeah. And then we're not having to make this call. And it also takes liability away. You know, if you're just giving information, it's always subject to change at the bottom trails, change, weather hits, whatever, you know, like subject to change and not telling people this is a green when for some people they might, they might go on it and get hurt and go, I thought it was going to be easy. That felt like a black to me. I'm going to sue the land management over that. And that's happened. Those are, those are issues that have happened in the past. So you're stripping away all liability on top of it. And so to tie this back into what your original question was, the trail building organizations have welcomed myself and my friend Quinn Brett and a few others into the conversation about the trails that they're building and how they can do a better job to support more people. And then they've been really open-minded to the idea of what we're bringing to the table that'll make things safer, better, more inclusive to people with disabilities and help everyone else at the same time. And now they're starting to implement that based on their ability of being so welcoming and open-minded. And now we're building trails that are working better for everyone. So the two key ingredients that have like steered me in a, in a really positive direction to be involved in this industry. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole trail rating system, just generally speaking, as you've kind of alluded to is, is its own Pandora's box of, of stuff. And there is actually, I did a podcast interview and would have been in June with the trail builder out of Salida, Colorado. And he had actually, he'd texted me, we're friends. He texted me, he's like, Hey, I got a topic for you. Let's talk the trail rating. 
let's talk about trail riding standards. And I'm like, okay, that could be as controversial as clips versus flats on YouTube. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. And so we recorded it and it's, and it's interesting. And, and he, he did point out the fact that, you know, that double black in Minnesota is probably not that in Colorado, you know? And that was kind of his thing. He's like, is, do we rate it based on what you would expect at this place? And that double black there is the hardest trail there or, or something else. And I personally prefer to try to keep a standard across the board. And I really do actually like what you just said more than anything, which is provide these facts. Like these are the simple facts about what you are going to, what you should expect on this trail with grades, stuff like that, that most people can understand. Yeah. And whether, you know, you can take it a step further too, and whether or not it's, um, there are alternative routes around features. Yeah. So like, is it, you know, when you start talking double blacks in my mind, you know, there are features that you maybe you can't go around, you know, mandatory hits, stuff like that. And some of that maybe could have a go like a, an alternative route created. Some of it, the, the land doesn't give that opportunity to have that, you know? And so you have to do this thing in order to go down this trail. People get in over their heads a lot with mountain biking and it's, it's as accessible as mountain biking has become where like somebody can show up at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort having only ever rode a Huffy when they were 10 years old and didn't touch a bike for 30 years and put on a bunch of football gear and grab a downhill mountain bike and go up Sweetwater Gondola and go down Dirty Harry, which is a pretty wild, techy downhill, double black trail um, and get themselves severely injured, right? Because it's that easy now. We're no longer building illegal trails hidden in the woods where you have to hike up and hike your bike over your shoulders and get it up to the top of the trail just to have a downhill run. That's not happening anymore, right? And so now that it's this accessible, um, the injuries have gone up significantly. And if you go spend enough time around a resort, you see a lot of people coming down with broken arms and backs and bruises and scrapes and all kinds of things that are happening because it's a pretty aggressive risk-taking kind of activity, especially when you're talking downhill. So how do we make that risk? How do we, how do we at least open the door so that people can make the best educated decision based on where they're at and their skills in life to be able to decide whether or not a trail is the right one for them? And so you can take it a step further. And the big dream would be having a trail sign that has the basic information on it. And then at the bottom has a QR code that you could scan or go into the website for, let's just say, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort and look at all the trails. And it gives you better, more detailed trail information about that trail. And, you know, I think with technology today, that's 100% doable. It's just a little bit of extra work. But I think if we include that extra work and, and put it in and start implementing it within trail systems around the country, I, I think the sport itself is going to get a lot safer, and at least in the sense of um, people are making better decisions because they're given the proper information. Yeah. And you just, you spurred my mind on another thing. One of the interviews I, do, I did it for Giants Ridge, which you're going to be familiar with Giants Ridge as it's in Northern Minnesota mm -hmm. is, you know, they had, they have 10 downhill trails built now at that facility. And even the toughest trails, when they were designing that and had it built, they built route around features into all of it. And a trail that I had uh, rock solid, a trail building company here located here in the mid Midwest build for us here in lacrosse was that same experience as well, where, and it, and I wasn't even, and AMTB wasn't even on my radar when, you know, when we're laying this thing out, but what was on my radar was, Hey, a 
blue level skilled rider should be able to roll down this trail or even an upper level green rider should be able to roll down this trail just like a person that wants that black diamond trail experience. And so while there's jumps on one side or the other, or there's a six foot drop and there's a route around for that six foot drop and berms and everything else, you don't have to do any of that stuff. And the purpose was to build progression for people to gain those skills. And maybe it's hitting one jump the first run or the first, even the first maybe three months of riding it, you know, and, and I was that person, you know, I, that trail here in lacrosse, like when we first opened that trail, there was, I wasn't hitting everything and it was Okay. I can hit one jump. Okay. I can hit three of the jumps. Okay. Now I can hit the drop. And you, you've talked about all of that here, you know, and it's, it's so to, to get that into the industry more generally speaking really helps a lot of people out. Yeah. I mean, you're nailing it. That's it's exactly it. And it takes a lot of time and research to have the perspective to be able to include as many people as possible. And I think, you know, um, one person that I work with a lot is Quinn Brett her and I are really good friends. She's another wheelchair user and, um, total badass athlete and, and just crushes it. And she knows the laws and regulations really well behind public lands. She works for the national park service and, uh, we've been working pretty hard to try to, um, help out with new trails and stuff that are being built around the country and test out trails. And some of that's about hiking. Some of it's about biking, but for people with disabilities, mobility, disabilities, like myself, um, we're using the same equipment for hiking as we are for, for biking. So um, we kind of focus on both ends of that, but taking the time, which took time to have an understanding of what the two wheeled industry is all about, what issues might lie within the systems that are already created within that two wheel industry as well for trails, what people on two wheels are want versus what they don't want. A lot of listening has gone on over the years to have a better understanding on how, you know, the idea of universal design goes both ways. It's not just people on two wheels trying to do something that accommodates everyone. It's also people on three wheels having an understanding for what people on two wheels want too. And so there's been a lot of back and forth conversations um, where there's some talking and some listening that has really helped me shape my opinion on a lot of this. And the only reason why I say that is I'm not coming at this perspective from just the disability perspective. It's been 12 years of really trying to learn and understand and then try to find solutions that I can bring to the table that can help address some of the issues that we're seeing across the board. And one of which is the trail rating systems. Across the board, it's loose, right? So how can we tighten that up? Information is better than a trail rating system. So that's just one example, right? And, and that's been really fun about, about this industry is there's a lot to learn. So if you're a year into mountain biking, yeah, I hope you don't sit back thinking you got it all figured out because it's a complicated community. It's a complicated industry. Um, you're working with different land management uh, uh, departments and things that could be BLM land. It could be national forest. It could be, you know, uh, private land. You know, you, you got all these different things and it gets complicated really fast. And that's kind of the cool thing about it is there's endless knowledge in there. It takes a lot of listening. And so, you know, when it comes to implementing universal design, you know, the tip that I always try to give everyone is one, include a qualified person with a disability in that mix, not just a person with a disability, a qualified person with a disability and try to get on the equipment, figure out how to make that happen. Um, usually that, that comes with the person that's the qualified person with a disability in the mix um, and get out on the trails and see what it's like. And don't go into any of this idea of universal design or supporting people with disabilities 
and with the mindset of you get it, you understand it, you got it figured out, you don't need that added support. If you're a trailblazing organization and you're building new trails, I, I guarantee you that there are things you can do differently if you include a person, a qualified person with a disability in the mix and get on the equipment and understand it a little bit better, there will be at least a couple of things that you'll shift in your mind because of that experience. And it's the things you don't know, you don't know. And we're all guilty of that. There's a lot of things we all don't know that we don't know. And so that's where the, the listening component to this whole conversation that we're having is so crucial for progression. It's just taking a step back. Hey, you got 25 years of trail building experience, but you've never done it for a person with a disability in your mindset. So the cool thing there is you get a moment to learn. And that is, I mean, that's the cool thing about mountain biking is I really do feel like there's endless progression within the sport, the the whole industry, whether it's the trail design, um, what people are capable of, the technology, how awesome the community is, but there's always room for growth. And that is uh, pretty unique and pretty cool. And that's why it's never left me. I mountain biked before my injury. I took a pretty big break because I felt like the equipment was holding me back too much. And it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to put more of a focus on things that I feel like I can continue to progress in, one of which was paragliding. And then uh, the technology seemed to really catch up and the bowhead came out and I got on a bowhead and I was like, oh, wow, I, I can actually go and progress at a level that I kind of had to let go of for a long time. And now I'm doing it. And uh, so that's the personal growth in there. And then seeing things like Idaho Rendezvous, you know, mountain bike festivals and races and stuff like that, that are starting to open up doors for people with disabilities as well. And it's just growth. And that's the neatest part. I mean, if you go back 30 years, look at, look at where mountain biking was at. And then if you fast forward to where we're at now, and that doesn't put a smile on your face, and man, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing, but that excites me. That's for sure. Yeah. Well... I think that's a good way to, to close this one out. Right on. I think. Do you, do you have, but I, but I need to give you the, I do need to give you the ability to have any closing comments and thank anyone, any, any supporters of you or anyone else that you want to make sure gets highlighted in, in this before closing it out. You know, I appreciate you giving me that opportunity. You know, I, I really do. Um, I, I, well, for starters, if anybody wants to learn more about any of the stuff that we are chatting about, it's pretty easy to get a hold of me. My email is joe at com. So reach out if you want to learn more about any of the things that we've been chatting about. I'm happy to take time and chat with people and, and um, share what I know. So joe at com is a good email. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram at, at meetjoestone. And that's another easy one to reach out to me through that outlet as well. And I'm happy and stoked to try to work with anybody out there that wants to expand into this idea of universal trail trail design. That's a big passion of mine now and something we're really trying to move forward on and, and, you know, take this moment where people are putting more focus into that and, and really try to help assist in it so that it becomes as universally designed as it possibly can while still having challenges, while still being a, you know, a, a challenging trail for whatever the skill level is. And, um, you know, I, I'm super appreciative of Jacksonville Mountain Resort for everything that they've done to shift their mindset, to be able to create almost what I would consider this, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a study going on up there. They've got not only the trail design and universal design they're trying to implement within that, they're the first resort, as far as I know, that's allowing e-bikes on the chairlifts. 
And they're putting a study on that. What kind of impact does that have? They're not saying it's going to be forever, but let's see. Does it have an impact? Does it not have an impact? Let's just see. It's really cool that they are being as innovative as they are. And I think being leaders and in showing that this kind of thought is, is putting this kind of thought into it is not only doable, but it's uh, improving our community's access into these public lands. And um, yeah, I mean, I could go on a rabbit hole list of people I could thank, but I'll just sum that one up and just like anybody and everybody who's giving me the high five to supported me to pick me up off the trail, to implementing, you know, better trail design for people with disabilities to all of it, all the organizations out there that are supporting people with disabilities. Like it's, it's just awesome. We're at a really cool time to be alive. It's the best time to be alive ever with a disability. It's more access than ever in all of history of the entire world and its whole history. Like, that's pretty cool. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I mean, you know what, man, I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful to be able to have these kind of conversations with you and really excited for what the future looks like. So I appreciate you giving me this platform to share some of my background and thoughts and opinions and rambles with your followers. Well, I really appreciate your openness to, and willingness to be able to do that. Cause we've definitely gone really got really far into the universal trail design thing, which was my goal with reaching out with you. And I really appreciate that. And the fact that this can be shared with more people. So thank you very much. Man, it's great to chat. Appreciate everything. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>